Yeah, we're a special breed <laughs> to, to be able to uh, just go over and open up a box of bees that has 50,000 bees in it and, and not be alarmed and stay calm and, um, and tell our stories afterwards. Welcome to the North Country Fruit and Vegetable Podcast. My name is Heather Bryant, and I am working on this project together with my UNH Extension colleagues, Olivia Saunders and Nick Rowley. The podcast is a COVID-friendly answer to the North Country Fruit and Vegetable Seminar and Trade Show, started by our retired colleague Steve Taraj approximately two decades ago. We plan to release five episodes of our podcast in the fall, and then in October, we will run a series of interactive lunchtime discussion sessions, one for each episode. During these sessions, we will be able to dive deeper into each topic. You can ask questions of the people we interviewed, other experts, or each other. The topics will center around issues and ideas of interest to farmers and people who choose to live a rural life. Thanks for joining us. Um, Jan, thanks for meeting with me today to talk about your sustainable bee business. Uh, Before we dive into some questions, do you want to just give a little overview or synopsis of your business? Thank you for asking me to do this. First of all, I love talking about bees and our bee business. Anybody that knows me knows that uh, I can't keep my mouth shut when it comes to this. We, I should say my husband and I, We run this as a family business. We like to promote uh, not only being sustainable with your farm business, but we like to promote um, keeping our earth healthy, and we feel it's really important. We manage about 104 hives total, give or take, through the season, grow bees for other beekeepers. So I do a lot of grafting of queen bees, a lot of dividing of other colonies. I like to um, sell our products, which are basically a raw, local, unprocessed honey. We make a lot of items from our beeswax and our honey that we sell. We do sell retail, but the majority of our business now is wholesale to different uh, stores and food co-ops. Uh, and small, smaller businesses that uh, can't order full cases at a time. So we don't mind helping them be- become sustainable also in their business by offering it like that. So if a business calls and they want to order, you know, six jars of this and six jars of that, you know, and a few of these and a few of those, that's fine with us because we know it's going to help their business grow. And you're mostly selling to shops and vendors in Coas, northern New Hampshire counties. In Grafton and Coas County, yep, in those two counties. And a few restaurants and breweries. So you already mentioned this a little bit, but, you know, you and your husband run White Mountain Apiary in Littleton. What does it mean to you to run a sustainable small business in northern New Hampshire? It is a lot more work than going to work from nine to five. We were up here the other night after a wicked storm blew through to check on the bees to make sure that things hadn't gotten tipped over with the high winds. And um, so it's it's a commitment. Uh, it's a commitment to 
our customers. It's a commitment to the community. Uh, and it's a commitment to our livestock. I mean, right behind you right now is probably close to 2 million bees in these hives. You know, we're committed to keeping them healthy so they can grow. So we work with many small diversified farms and farm businesses in New Hampshire. Um, Hopefully they're listening to this podcast today. What would you say to another small vegetable or animal or fruit farm that wanted to add bees as one of their enterprises if they wanted to diversify their enterprises into beekeeping? Well, the beekeeping would help their business because of the pollination factor, that portion of it. But what I would say to them from the beginning is come you know, to either here or to another apiary and spend an hour diving into hives with a beekeeper first to see if it's something that you're comfortable with. And then after that, get some education, take a class. It's really important. Join a local bee club because you can usually get a mentor and support local. I think that is one thing that is unique about beekeeping, probably across the U.S., is that there are many, many local associations or clubs to get involved with, which you don't really see for, you know, raspberry growers or some other commodity group. But there is this fraternity amongst beekeepers. Yeah, we're a special breed <laughs> to to be able to uh, just go over and open up a box of bees that has 50,000 bees in it and and not be alarmed and stay calm and um, and tell our stories afterwards. So when we talk about sustainability, we often talk about the three-legged stool where you have your economic sustainability for your business, the environmental sustain- sustainability, you know, with you working with your bees, and that's a big part of it, and, and the earth. This third leg, social sustainability, making sure your family, your health, your well-being, that you're happy doing what you're doing. So what does sustainability mean to you and to your business? Well, first of all, I don't think that I've ever been happier than I am right now. You know, we're sitting here on these 80 plus acres uh, in the middle of a a field surrounded by beautiful trees and a a pond. Um, And it's peaceful. And it's very zen-like. And I become very calm going in the hives. Now, I, I mean, it took me a couple of years to get over my initial, my fear of it. And I guess I have to add the caveat. I had the fear because I was allergic to bees wow. and was doing this. Wow. And I've built up over over the first eight years it took me to build up immunity to getting stung by the bees. And for the past two and a half years, I have not had to use my EpiPens. I still carry them with me, Mm -hmm. but I don't have to use them. So you've learned the Zen of of beekeeping. Yeah. (laughs) And that translates to other aspects of your life. Very much so. Very much so. So there's a lot of talk in the beekeeping world about the loss, uh, annual winter loss of bees. So that leads me to my next question of whether beekeeping itself is sustainable. I think honey beekeeping will always be sustainable 
we are always going to find backyard beekeepers, uh, sideline beekeepers, and commercial beekeepers that are going to um, learn to grow or already are growing new colonies. Um, so I think that will always happen. What concerns me with these high numbers of losses, I know the national average is at 47% right now, um, is that we can replace that 47% very easily, but we can't replace the 47% of native bees that are probably being lost at the same time as our honeybees. Mm -hmm. That type of number and sustainability or lack of sustainability on the side of the natives concerns me greatly. I think most of it has to do with climate. I think some of it has to do with chemicals, the environment, and some of it has to do with genetics. In your apiary, you have focused a lot on northern raised queens and and kind of getting your own genetic stock going. And I know you've traveled the state far and wide and probably cross borders to get wild swarms so you can get some of that um, genetic into your breeding line. And I don't know if you call them northern hardy or mutt bees, but tell us about your journey as a sustainable, quote unquote, beekeeper. And what do you do differently now that you didn't do at the start with your beekeeping? When I started growing my own queens, I just got excited that I had new queens. I didn't test them to see how hygienic they were. Now we do test for hygienics before we graft from a colony. And I think that that's really important, not only for the queens and the stock you know, the worker bees that they're going to be putting out, but for the brood, the drone production brood that the queen is going to be putting out, I think is really important. And we, in our nuke yards, our mating yards, we like to put in drone stock that we know have been genetically tested. The way I can explain it simply is that for those that are not beekeepers, A queen has a set of 16 chromosomes. A drone, the male bee, also has a set of 16 chromosomes. So you want to get the best of both of those sets. So if we test our queen breeders for those great genetics, and then we test our drone breeders for those great genetics, what's going to come out of it is going to be some great colonies. And so that's what we're looking for. You know, they are open-mated, so we can never tell exactly who they are mating with. But our yards are off by themselves enough. They're isolated enough that we can pretty much guarantee that that's who they're mating with. We're not in a big urban area that has a lot of different bees. And that's one of the reasons we moved our brood production to this Whitefield spot instead of leaving it in Littleton, because there were a lot of more beekeepers in their backyards in Littleton than they are up here. Just thinking there's a lot of similarities with people that um, save their own seed or are like, you know, corn, for example, is one that is susceptible to that um, mixing of genetics, like your bees in Littleton 
downtown would would be susceptible to any other corn that might be growing in the city. That's correct. So what does that look like when you're doing those genetic testing or hygienic testing of your bees? We're looking to see how they will clean up anything in their comb that needs to be cleaned up. We basically take a three-inch piece of PVC and we place it on the comb and we hit them with liquid nitrogen to kill that area. And we will go back and we will check in 12 hours, 18 hours, 24 hours, 48 hours, and see how much of that has been cleaned up. And we go by percentages. So anything that's over 95%, I'm happy with. So you're, you're essentially giving a rating to each colony, which is the, the queen. You're rating the queen yep. by rating how clean that the cleanup is. Yes. And that's a function of hy- hygienics. That's a function of hygienics because every colony will get some form of disease at some level, but a good hygienic, healthy colony will clean it out before it becomes a problem. And that's what we're looking for. Mm-hmm. So again, many similarities to anyone with animals that is breeding in their rating the ewe or the mother the sow, whatever it is for their certain traits. We're looking for them to be um, not only hygienic, we're looking for them to be gentle. We're looking for them to be good brood producers. We're looking for them to be good honey producers, good pollen producers. I mean, I have one bee yard that is strictly for pollen. You know, I mean, yeah, they do make honey, they do, uh, they do make brood, but they bring in tons and tons of pollen. Folks listening might not be as um, aware of some of the pressures on bees. So we've talked a lot about hygienics, but why is that so important to beekeepers nowadays? Because these bees can bring in pollen or nectar that has been tainted either by other pathogens, because they're going from flower, you know, blossom to blossom to blossom. So these diseases can be spread that way. Diseases and uh, can also be picked up from any chemicals that they've come in contact with. And I had one hive last year in Littleton that they basically propolized every single bit of pollen that they brought in because they did not want the bees in the hive to use it. So the bees knew something we didn't. That's right. They're always smarter than us, aren't they? I think so. <laughs> I think so. They, they've got it down pat. And the unique thing is, is that they're born with this. They're not taught this. This is something that, that is in them as soon as that egg is laid. So, Jan, you're involved in many different organizations um, in the beekeeping world that help your help the beekeeping community both here in your local community, but also statewide. So can you talk about why being involved in these community organizations is important to you and your business? I learned so much from belonging to these organizations. Um the, not only do the bees teach me something new every day, but I also learn from information that I receive from these organizations about new studies, new findings, new methods, 
Um, and I like to belong to a lot of the community information organizations so I can share that information with them. Um, an example was I was giving a talk to a local garden club and a woman said, I cannot not spray my lawn with a weed and feed because it has a lot of ajuga and I want to get rid of it. And I said, well, first of all, ajuga is kind of nice. It's pretty. The bees love it. It's healthy for them. But if you really don't want to look at it, there's other methods. And it was something that I had learned from another organization I belong to. Just add some lime to the soil. And then you will not have the ajuga. It won't grow. It changes the pH. And you don't have to worry about it. And then you don't have to put the chemicals down on your lawn. So it's simple things that we can share with others that can make a huge difference. I don't know if you realized it or not, but I know there have been studies, quick studies done, that even once COVID hit and we had the lack of airplanes, the lack of truck traffic, the lack of, you know, all of this going on in our in our world, the difference in our oceans and in our land and, our, you know, there's just been incredible turnaround in that short period of time that has made such a huge difference. So can you imagine if we continued that? Yeah. I mean, in some ways, no, but I know what you mean. <laughs> um, so you're well known throughout the beekeeping community in New Hampshire, but you didn't always do this work. So what things did you do at the beginning that got you to where you are now? Smile, keep my head down. Um, don't make too many waves. <laughs> um, get the education. I mean, I took a lot of local B classes. I took a lot of regional B classes. Um, I completed the B classes at Cornell University. Um, take advantage of any workshops that you can. Uh, and you will learn about all of those by belonging to an, these organizations. We have New Hampshire Beekeepers, and then we have 10 separate regional bee clubs in New Hampshire. And then there's some also some local private ones around New Hampshire that you can get involved in. So, yeah, definitely do it um, and give back. Okay, so this next question is kind of a bee nerd question. And if you don't keep bees, you might be confused. So we'll have to explain it later. But Battalion, Carniolian, or Saskatras, do you have a favorite? Do I have to just choose those three? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> I like the best of all of them. Um, I mean, it's it's like people. You know, it you have different uh, races of people, and there's good people in those races, and there's bad people in those races. So it's the same with the bees. I have some Italians here in this broodyard um, that are wonderful. Um, I have, I've had Italians that are not wonderful. So I think it just depends on the luck of the draw. 
Uh, it also, I think, depends on if you're putting in new queens um, that year, how the how the queens were grown and and what what those queens when they were being grown, what they had as resources. Um, I tell beekeepers now, you have to take care of your bees in the summer if you want to have great winter bees, because our bees that are being laid in August and September are going to be our winter bees. If I don't have healthy bees then taking care of those eggs and larvae, I am not going to have healthy bees going through the winter. They will only live four to six weeks instead of four to six months. So it's it's a process to know that you have to have those nurse bees taking care of those winter bees that are healthy because they're going to give them enough royal jelly, enough pollen, enough bee bread, enough honey, and enough care to sustain them so they grow into the bees that will live long. I still don't know what your favorite is, but... My own. <laughs> My North Country bees. And maybe that was the answer I was looking for because you you do have such a a mix and I think that is part of your success is having the diversity yeah the the, the diversity in the genetics I think makes a huge difference um they don't get watered down right no inbreeding depression there what is the hardest part of keeping bees in northern New Hampshire winters absolute winters which you're setting up for right now in yep. the summer months. Yep. Yeah, we um, we have a winter bee room, and I put the breeder queens in there um, so I don't have to worry about them. Um, our other brood production queens um, will remain here in this yard. So when you say uh, a winter room... What are, what's the conditions like in there? We have a special room as in part of a garage that is totally closed off uh, and dark. There is no windows, no light in it at all. It has a fan going 24-7 to move the air. It has intake air, and it has a huge exhaust fan. Uh, and that's not to um, keep it warm or cold, that is to get rid of CO buildup because bees do produce the CO. Um, It is also um, to remove heat. We've gone in there. I had 43 hives in there. Uh, We've gone in there in a 15 below morning, and those bees have had that room at 39 degrees. So we try to keep them between 38 and 40. And they had it themselves. So the fans didn't have to go on that day to remove some of the heat. Because they, they keep their brood colony much warmer, their cluster much warmer. And that produces excessive heat. And excessive heat produces excessive moisture inside the hive. And it's the excessive moisture inside the hive that will kill the bees through the winter. So that room is sort of moderating temperature. Temperature, humidity. And you've had that room now one full winter or has it been Two more? full winters. 
and you're you're feeling like this is part of the success of those breeder queens? Absolutely. The first winter we went in with 45 breeder queens and came out with 43. And if you look at the national ratio of losing 47% of the colonies, I lost 5% and was amazing. I was a happy camper. I think a lot of other, not a lot, but a, a fair amount of other beekeepers of your size or larger are moving bees to southern New Hampshire or southern USA for the winter. Right. And so your your alternative is kind of... Keep them here and keep them happy, give them all the resources that they need. Uh, we don't transport our bees. We don't do a pollination routine. We have friends that will go out to the almond groves in California and then down through Texas to the uh, pecan groves and then to Florida and then to Georgia and then up to Maine for the blueberry barrens. And we don't do that. Our bees stay with our bees. Many of our yards will stay right where they are for the entire winter. We don't move them. So we don't have to worry about spreading any of those pathogens that would be picked up by other bees. Yeah, maybe we can talk about that a little more. What? How do you think that shipment of bees around the U.S. affects um, the colony, an individual colony? Considering that the bees only live four to six weeks in their natural life, putting that many flyer miles on them, is is pretty daunting. I know I would be tired if I traveled all those miles in the short period of time that they do, but it's uh, it's a stretch for them. The other issue is they are going to monocultures. I would not want to eat the same thing for six weeks and have just that. I think it's really important for them to have that diverse diet to keep them healthier. Which we certainly have in New Hampshire. As a beekeeper, what might other farm operations learn from your experience as a beekeeper? Try to find a simple way of doing a tough problem. Simplify it. Streamline your time. Our time is very valuable as bee farmers, as any kind of farmer. You're gonna, your time is got a higher ratio on it than any other job. And I think that if you can find a way to streamline uh, your operation, that's really important, whether that be uh, in the actual doing of a process, whether it's collecting the honey, whether it's extracting the honey, you know, whether it is having a business plan and following it, whether it is using QuickBooks to help with your bookkeeping, all of those things, I think, make a difference. Whether it's joining an organization of a, of a group of other farmers to talk about marketing. And there's so many different things, you know, whatever you can do to grab and absorb and chew on it a little bit and hopefully make it part of your own operation. You mentioned bee business, your, your business plan, excuse me. You've been running this business for more than five years, mm -hmm. so it's likely that your business plan has evolved or changed. Can you talk about that? How you know? How did you did, how did you approach writing a business plan? And is that something that you're looking at annually or every 
five years, you know? No, I look at my business plan like every three months to make sure not only that I'm staying on track, that I'm not getting sidetracked somewhere else. Um, I used um, the Small Business Association webpage to help formulate my business plan. That was that was huge, huge. Uh, and it's free. It's online. It's part of, you know, a government program. And I would suggest to anybody going into any type of farm business or any business to to make a business plan because it's going to help you decide and formulate, you know, what you want to do now, but also where you might want to go in the future. And those plans can change and it's okay if they do, but look at it uh, with open eyes. Sage advice. Uh, What other White Mountain or North of the Notch farms or businesses are inspiring you right now? One of the businesses that is uh, really inspiring to me is Tarnation Flower Farm out in Sugar Hill. Reggie and Vanessa have taken it to a whole new level. Um, They are embracing change as fast as it happens because they have to. I mean, they dealt with the drought and COVID and uh, and they just keep moving forward with such great positive attitude. Uh, and I I am inspired by them. And great collaborators for your, yes. your bees. Great great home for your some of your bees. For some of them, yeah. <laughs> There's definitely a group out there, many people out there, that are aware of the issues with honeybees and native bees that want to do something to save the bees. And there's also people that are interested in becoming beekeepers. Sometimes these two things get conflated, I think. But what would be your advice for people that want to save save the bees, quote unquote, and someone who wants to become a beekeeper? I would say take an intro class to see if it's something you actually want to do. Take a good inventory of your land where you would potentially want to put them to see if it's going to be a good area or not. Uh, You definitely may not want to put your bees right next to uh, a GMO cornfield. You know, you you want them to have the diversity. And even though they don't pollinate the corn, um, they still land on it. Uh, You want to have a good water source nearby. There are many uh, organizations that give great tips to people on if you just want to plant a pollinator garden. I would have to say the Xerces Society is a great resource to go on to their webpage. Or if you have the opportunity to hear one of their speakers, definitely go, go see it. But there's a lot. A lot of the garden clubs in New Hampshire right now are also reaching out to the public to promote pollinator gardens and uh, healthy yards. So that would be a good good spot to start too. Well, I don't have any more questions for you today. Is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? Yeah, when you're looking for honey in New Hampshire, look for uh, your local beekeeper. 
I have had people from southern New Hampshire come up north and they want to buy my honey and they want to buy pollen. And I say, well, I will absolutely sell it to you, but you'd be, you know, for your allergies, but you would be better off buying from a beekeeper in your local area to get your local pollen and your local honey. So that would be my answer. And we all try to promote each other. Absolutely. Honey is probably the number one thing I don't buy at a grocery store um, because you need, really need to look at the label and make sure it's at, at least USA produced. But some of us do sell wholesale to the grocery stores. So when you are perusing those shelves to look for something that says raw, unheated, local, and look at the address. Um don't just look uh, for the name because it could be a company, um, you know, out of your town or a local town nearby that is packaged in Ohio. You know, so you want to make sure that you're looking for something that is actually local. And if you can get to your local beekeeper, it's even better. Even better. Everybody wins. Well, I've had very much fun chatting with you today. Thank you for your time and sharing your wisdom with us. Um, We're going to upload some photos to uh, the website so you can see some pictures of one of Jan's apiaries. Great. Thank you for asking me today. Thanks again for joining the conversation about agriculture in the North Country. And be sure to check out our webpage, extension.unh.edu forward slash north, where you can find this podcast information about the North Country Fruit and Vegetable Conference, and instructions for participating in episode discussions. The North Country Fruit and Vegetable Podcast is a production of University of New Hampshire Cooperative Extension, an equal opportunity educator and employer. Views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of the university, its trustees, or its volunteers. Inclusion or exclusion of commercial products in this podcast does not imply endorsement. The University of New Hampshire, U.S. Department of Agriculture, and New Hampshire counties cooperate to provide extension programming in the Granite State. Learn more at extension.unh.edu.